It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. In case of democracy, very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here with another episode of Democracy Sausage, which comes to you from the Ideas Factory that is the Australian National University. 2021 marks 20 years since September 11, 20 years of war in the Middle East, much of it in Afghanistan, home of the Taliban, protectorate of Al-Qaeda, and destroyer of Enlightenment modernity. Australia announced its closure of its embassy in Kabul in May, citing security concerns following the withdrawal of US and Australian forces. If ever there was to be a graphic demonstration of the utter failure of Western intervention in that benighted, violent country, this was it. A frank admission that the security situation is extremely dangerous and that our diplomats face mortal danger without armed protection. This was a point well made by one of our three excellent guests today, Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent of the Saturday Paper and author of an authoritative and prescient book timed for the first decade anniversary of September 11, An Unwinnable War, Australia in Afghanistan. Karen, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Also with us is Virginia Hausiger, a broadcaster, a podcaster, a women's activist and a writer about Afghanistan who even travelled there at the height of the war, essentially as a private person to research uh, the situation facing women and children there. Virginia, welcome. Thanks, Mark. And I should say, (laughs) you've recently become a columnist for The Mandarin, where you've written about the plight of Afghan women again. Mm. I should also say, in the the, uh, interest of full disclosure, that you're my wife. And you're my husband, yes. I'll (laughs) disclose that as well. Confirmed. And Emeritus Professor William Maley is an Afghan expert who is also a former Professor of Diplomacy at the ANU and was Foundation Director of the Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy. He's a barrister of the High Court and many things besides. William Maley, so great to have you on Democracy Sausage at last. My pleasure. Karen, let's start with your observation about Afghanistan being again on the verge of extremist violence that we supposedly went there to resolve. I I noticed you made that point the other day and I thought it was such a, a good point, you know, that... 
here we are pulling our troops out and we have to close the embassy as well. Well, it's, doesn't, it's not a big vote of confidence in the state of things in Kabul in particular, but in the whole country, I think, is it that after 20 years of war, we're hightailing it out finally and we're not even willing to leave Australian Defence Force personnel there to guard the embassy. Uh, we had the option, as I understand it, of co-locating with the United States and we didn't want that either. So it, it's no wonder really that both the United States and the Afghan government have been unhappy with Australia for making that decision because it has the potential to cause a chain reaction and send everybody running for the exits. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we could have left forces there, just a small number of forces there for the purposes of uh, security for the, the, the embassy on an ongoing basis. But what the decision was what that was, even that was too hard, that those forces themselves would be in harm's way because of the deteriorating situation. That's right. My understanding is the government wasn't prepared to leave ADF personnel there at all, any of them. Uh, it was also all done in a little bit of a tricky manner. The, the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, went to Afghanistan to speak to the Afghan government on her way to Washington in one of those unannounced visits. And mm. This uh, was in, in early May, I think, In May. It? Yeah. it was only a couple of weeks, as it turned out, before this announcement about the embassy was made. She didn't tell the Afghan government that the Australia was planning to close the embassy. As I understand it, she was still looking for other options. Uh, she went on to Washington and then, as it turns out, the federal cabinet meeting back home with her on a video link took the decision to close the embassy while she was in Washington. So a whole lot of things mm. happened there that's a little unusual and uh, annoyed a few of our um, of our allies. Yeah, not, not surprisingly because, as you say in that meeting and as you write about, uh, she told Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, uh, that Australia was there for the long haul and that this was uh, she was looking for a, a quote a new chapter in the bilateral relationship. So it it almost feels like she's been overruled. If that was the kind of rhetoric she was using at that meeting, and as as you say, then there's a national security committee meeting of which she you know is a, is a member, but but it essentially takes a decision that that countermands uh, what she's she said. She was certainly very emotional during estimates hearings when she was being asked to explain all of this and when she revealed some of that sequence of events. In fact, in the second lot of estimates when she was there with the Foreign Affairs Department, she insisted on making a statement to the committee uh, when, when the committee was ready to move on to other subjects and she almost broke down. There was a very long silence when she couldn't couldn't speak and had to gather her thoughts and was talking about the sacrifice of Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. She's clearly very emotional about this whole decision and that does lead one to suspect that there were it was not entirely of her doing. Mm. William Maley, what's your reading of this? Is it fair to surmise from it that uh, this is another case where we see Maurice Payne as foreign minister perhaps not having the clout within the government that some other foreign ministers have traditionally had. It's a very senior portfolio. I mean, you know, we have the prime minister, we have the treasurer. The foreign minister is usually, you know, considered number two or three after that. It does appear, as Karen's pointing out there, that she's really been over overruled by the rest of the government. Yes, it does. Uh, she has a reputation, I think, for being well-intentioned but not a particularly forceful or strong figure within the deliberations of government. Uh, it is a curious decision to withdraw the embassy uh, at this particular point. There have been two attacks in the past on the Australian embassy, one in 2008 when it was located in the Serena Hotel uh, and one in its current location. But having visited the embassy on a number of occasions, 
it's pretty well protected. Uh, and one starts groping for other factors that might have been at play in explaining this particular decision, two which come to mind are firstly that I think the government would be keen to avoid a Saigon 1975 scenario in which people who had been associated with Australia might look to the embassy for protection and in Mm. a way if you evacuate the field even before that kind of crunch point arrives, then you're in a position to turn around and say, well, we'd love to help you, but we're no longer in a position to do so. The other is that it's pretty clear that there are some in the government who are not particularly uh, enthusiastic about pursuing uh, war crimes that have been identified by the Brereton report as having been committed by Mm -hmm. elements of the Special Operations Task Force. And closing the embassy, in a sense, throws an obstacle in the path of successful prosecutions of um, uh, service personnel. And we know that such prosecutions have been strenuously opposed by people like Senator Jackie Lambie, whose vote in the upper house is potentially critical in securing the passage of government legislation. So I think there's a domestic politics dimension in within Australia to the decision as well as something that's purely driven by international relations. That's a really strong charge in a way, though, really, because I'm, I'm kind of doing the mental arithmetic and thinking, going to the to the point of the question and thinking, well, who does have a lot of clout in National Security Committee? It's the Defence Minister, mm-hmm. Peter Dutton, uh, who's made no secret of his feelings about the war crimes prosecutions and about the awarding of the uh, the citation that uh, that uh, unit uh, unit wide citation that came across. One almost suspects that 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 Dutton has um, has had more clout in the committee than has the foreign minister. It's certainly a question that would be useful to investigate, and in thirty years' time, uh, when the documents become available, <laughs> that's all we have to wait. I hope years. I'm still alive to have a look at that issue. <laughs> I want to come back to a couple of those issues you raised there, and you know the parallels with with um, Vietnam are. Um, you know they've been sort of resisted over time, but they just keep mounting up. Mm. Uh, and you and you make that interesting one about the evacuation of, of Saigon, for example. But Virginia, let's let's get back to basics. Why did we go there in the first place? <laughs> it's a very good question, isn't it? Look, one of and both your guests could uh, elaborate on this, I'm sure. But of particular interest to me is one of the reasons that we went into Afghanistan, and I say we, as in the US and and allies was the liberation of women. I mean, this was something that George Bush himself spoke very strongly about, as did others. And in fact, when um, when the Taliban, when the US forces behind the Northern Alliance uh, cracked through Kabul in, in 2001 and the Taliban eventually fled and the embassy, the US embassy re-raised its, its flag, that was one of the first things George W. Bush said is today the women of Afghanistan are free. John Howard also repeated that claim that uh, this was about the the liberation of women. Um, Laura Bush, the first lady, um, went uh, actually did a media trip where she she went out on the road speaking about the treatment of women and, and girls under the Taliban in '96 to 2001, and it gave a great emotional tug to this war, and it gave a, a cause célèbre in in some respects. I mean, the war itself was was going to be clearly very difficult and very expensive, and the military operations complex, and so identifying women and and the the, the freedom of girls and and women uh, as a key rationale for war made a lot of good PR sense, but it also in in reality made 
good sense. I mean, the, the, the situation for women under the Taliban was the worst in the world. It was just appalling. Women were treated as, as, as slaves, uh, domestic slaves, sex slaves, and, and like animals, and naturally yeah. rated let, let, less let, than let's animals. Talk, let's talk about some of those things. And But just before we do, the, the point you're making about the kind of cause celebrities you described, it's like the moral spine of ju- that justifies the war in the first place, isn't it? This, the, what, what's happening to women. So what sort of conditions were women, women living with under the Taliban? You've, you've described it as a form of five-year house arrest. Yeah, I have in, in, in a recent column I wrote. But it's, look, even worse than that. I mean, the reality is the Taliban um, rules for women during their rule from 96 to 2001, as I said, was that effectively women had to stay out of sight. So women couldn't be in public without covering their face. They weren't to leave home without a male chaperone, a family male chaperone. Uh, they weren't to wear, wear heels. They weren't to be heard. They weren't to be heard laughing and certainly not singing. As we know, music was banned, televisions were banned, radios were banned, etc. Women were forbidden from going to school. Girls weren't allowed to go to school. Women weren't allowed to be educated. Women weren't allowed to be employed, to have a job. Uh, they weren't allowed to own cash or property. So effectively, it is. And we're only talking about, you know, the, the late 90s. Yeah. Um so effectively, they were enslaved by by men. Uh, it was, as George Bush and, and Laura Bush said at the time, it was horrendous and it was unacceptable. So we go in there, Karen, and 20 years later or so, we're coming out of there, 41 Australians have died in the process. I think something like 39,000 Australians have rotated through that theatre of war. As William Maley said, there are war crimes investigations associated with it. We can, we can come to that in a moment as well. But we're now in, the, in this, and of course, many, many people have come out of there with, you know, perhaps the majority of those 39,000 troops have come out of there with psychological scarring as a result of uh, the deprivations and, and horrors of war. The question, what was it all for, really does, you know, it's like the, it hangs there is the, is the major question. Well, it's been the question since the beginning, really. And Virginia makes a very good point when she talks about the issue of women being the cause celeb. It was the emotional reason, one of the emotional reasons given because the allied forces needed to connect this war with ordinary people and needed, mm. people needed to understand why what we were doing there. When we first went in there, we, the Allied forces, it was because there'd been an attack on September 11, 2001 in the United States and the United States and its allies wanted to avenge that attack and get al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. So that actually was the reason mm. they went in in the beginning in December 2001. But once the, the agony and the emotion of that died down, which, you know, took a long time, then they needed to sort of uh, sustain the support for that conflict. So then other reasons emerged, including the issue of, of women. But the big problem all the way through has been that the reasons we were there kept on changing, just like the strategy kept on changing. Part of the problem was they couldn't get Osama bin Laden. They didn't succeed in the original mission. So they needed other reasons to be there. And it became a very confused conflict on the part of the Allies. There was no clear strategy 
Uh, and that is why we've ended up 20 years later walking out of that country without peace and stability, which was also uh, among, which were also among the objectives for being there. And, and now there's a risk to the very gains that were made for women and for ordinary people. In rural Afghanistan already, things are, are very bad. And, you know, you get I'm getting messages this week from Afghanistan about the state of things in a Ruzgan province where Australians mostly served and it's diabolically bad. So that is heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, and I fear very much for the people of Afghanistan, women and men, um, but particularly the women, that, that we are going to see terrible things if indeed the Taliban take over again. And that's got to be a high probability. Mm. Mm. Indeed. Uh, if one looks at the question of why things went wrong in Afghanistan, I don't think one can underestimate the impact of Iraq. The US intervention in Iraq really sucked the oxygen out of the Afghan theatre in a critical period. And it gave an opportunity for the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate of the Pakistan Armed Forces to resume support for the Taliban uh, as an instrument to minimise the prospect of Indian influence in Afghanistan, which the Pakistani military had always seen as threatening. And uh, if one looks at how things then deteriorated, it all goes back to the mounting availability of sanctions, training, financial support for the Taliban coming through Pakistan, which the US political elite proved spectacularly incapable of addressing effectively. It was not something that could be addressed effectively by the Afghan government. It was far too weak to do so. It was not something that the US military in Afghanistan could address either. They couldn't invade Pakistan and bomb the sanctuaries from within Afghanistan. It really required high-level pressure uh, on Pakistan from Washington and its allies of a kind that had been applied through uh, a message from Richard Armitage immediately after the September 11th attacks. But the US failed to do that. Uh, and really everything that's gone wrong since then can be traced back to the failure to address the issue of perfidious behaviour on the part of Pakistan. Among the other reasons that, uh, you know, Karen made, made the very good point that there are a whole lot of, you know, sort of a soup of reasons really that sort of came to the surface from time to time to justify the whole, uh, the whole business. Um, there was the, there was the reasoning that Afghanistan was a staging ground for international terrorism, that, uh, it was, that's what, you know, it, so it represented a material threat to the West, particularly to the US, but to others because it was a, you know, a, a training ground for, for extremists. And then, of course, there's the opium trade as well, which was uh, you mm. know, a very big part of, of, of the justification. Mm. Yeah. The, the Americans, I think, at this point have overestimated the extent to which they can uh, affect leverage against the Taliban in the future by talking about things like international recognition or aid funds, because the Taliban are making plenty at the moment from opium and from uh, extortion from transit. Uh, trade within Afghanistan as well. Uh, they're, they're making uh, a very pretty penny out of that. Uh, and uh, more broadly, I think there are huge difficulties associated with limiting the issue of terrorism simply to what's going on in Afghanistan because what's relevant to the wider terrorist threat is not simply what is taking shape organisationally in Afghanistan but what inspirational effects a withdrawal from Afghanistan can have on radical groups in other parts of the world. 
Because if one looks back to the late 1980s when the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, their withdrawal triggered a narrative that went worldwide, which was to the effect that the lesson of the 1980s war in Afghanistan was that religion was a force multiplier that could defeat even a superpower. Mm -hmm. That is already taking shape again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the danger is that it will find receptive audiences in Indonesia and Malaysia and the southern Philippines and in areas where there's been huge investment in recent years in attempts to counter violent extremism. And this seems not even to have registered as a danger with the US policy uh, circles, which in a way doesn't surprise me entirely, but which I think is quite dangerous where Australia is concerned. Mark, can I just add to that too, and just wearing another of my hats, a a strategic communications specialist, um, it's really fascinating when we look at what happened uh, when eyes were diverted to Iraq in Afghanistan, the Taliban upskilling themselves with strategic communication tools in a way that had never been done before. David Kilcullen has wrote, written very well about this. But there was a period there around 2002, where a lot of training was done, where apparently Taliban uh, members were actually taken outside of Afghanistan and trained up by al-Qaeda operatives who were really, really good at social media, uh, video making, etc. And that, that actually was a turning point too for the Taliban in terms of communications, mm. um, reaching out to the hearts and minds whilst Australia, US and allies were still focusing very much on trying to explain our military operations. And as Karen said before, it was very confused and it was, it was difficult. The justification of the war was constantly difficult for, for politics to get their heads around or politicians, I should say. During that time, the Taliban got really, really good mm. at uh, selling a message and in fact, much better at it than the rest of us were. And in fact, early on, you know, they were very suspicious of technology. You know, yes. traditionally the, the Taliban shunned technology. They, they actually kept the drug trade under control when they were, you know, that's one of the things they did do because they were very anti-that. And then we saw this transformation where they grasped technology, began to use it as a tool of, of war and power. And again, and the drug trade flourished because they could make money out of it, which mm-hmm. enabled them to fund their pushback against or their insurgency against the allied forces. So, you know, it was a big shift in, in the way they operated through that period. Mm. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we've 
been we've been talking about this this journey that we've been through this sort of futile journey in a sense of uh, you know trying to remove the Taliban and then winding up negotiating with the Taliban about what terms uh, they will take over again in you know, effectively Virginia you've written also about the negotiations that are going on and you know going back to the point about the justification one of the key justifications that kind of moral argument about the treatment of women what what can we glean from the negotiations with the Taliban about any progress on that front? Uh, look, I, I find this quite staggering, and surprisingly, there is much less talk about it in media coverage than than there really should be. But if we go just go back to last year, twenty twenty in February, the the Doha uh, negotiations, the first peace round with the US and the Taliban leaders, um, in that very first peace negotiation or supposedly peace negotiation agreement, uh, no women, well, there was one woman present as part of the uh, Afghan delegation, of course, none. This on the Afghan government side rather than the Taliban side. Uh, yes, yep. correct. And, of course, uh, none with the, the Taliban itself. But but the, the agreement that was struck between the US and the Taliban at the time, which set out a, a timeline which um, gave the, the broad parameters of a, a withdrawal, um, including prisoner exchange and um, uh, security arrangements in terms of attacks on the US and US interests, etc. That document, which was four pages long, of course, didn't mention women and women weren't part of the discussion or the agreement at all. And since then, the intra-Afghan peace negotiations with the Taliban uh, uh, in Moscow and um, back in, in Afghanistan have failed to bring the issue of women to the forefront. And in fact, in some of those negotiations in Moscow, again, there was only uh, a couple of women. There are now, I think, about four in, in total involved in the intra-Afghan negotiating team. But the fact that women are being kept out of this not only is ludicrous, but it defies the Women, Peace and Security Arrangement Agreement, the very plan or UN Security Council um, resolution that Afghanistan has signed up to, as has Australia, of course, and Afghanistan even have it, has its own Women, Peace and Security National Action Plan. And yet here they are involved in peace negotiations with the Taliban and women are still very, very sidelined. And the Taliban won't even look at wouldn't even look at that one woman who was part of the <laughs> Afghan right. uh, uh, government delegation. Wouldn't even eyeball, you know, meet meet her eye to eye because they, they they can't stand to do so. Yes. And you know, if people want a graphic representation of how how far backwards this is likely to slide, I'm reminded of the fact that at one point uh, the Afghan Afghanistan Parliament or the Jirga, I think it's called, had. Close to fifty percent representation, did it not? It hasn't had fifty percent. No, it, in the constitution in two thousand and four, gender equality was included for the first time in their constitution, which in itself is quite extraordinary. Australia doesn't have gender equality enshrined in our constitution, but in Afghanistan, it also included a representation of women in parliament up to twenty five percent. At the moment, they have twenty seven percent. That's the highest they've had of representation of women. However, well, exceeded Australia. Anyway, that's the point at the well, time. Well, at, at one time it did. Yes, yeah. we're up around thirty-one, thirty-two now. But but w- what was interesting is that the the the, the involvement of women in the Jirga, the national parliament, hasn't necessarily improved the um, the plight or status of women in Afghanistan anyway, because many of those women, almost all of them, are very beholden to their male you know sponsors. Effectively, um, those who have been very outspoken, there have been some. Uh, in fact, there. There was um, 
uh, Malala Joya, who came to Australia in 2007 and, and won all sorts of uh, peace awards, um, was not only outspoken, but her life was threatened constantly to the point where for many years she was living on the run uh, and had to live her life under a burqa like other women. But uh, her, her life was constantly under threat because she was outspoken in Parliament and therefore considered to be you know, a shocking woman, a terrible woman. And also she called out a lot of political corruption. She called out the fact that there were warlords or former warlords in Parliament uh, and that there was an extraordinary corruption. So mm. she was considered to be an incredible tr- troublemaker, which she was. Mm. Bill, you were talking before about the Afghan interpreters and Karen's written about this as well. It does really raise the image of Vietnam, doesn't it, of the end of that war and the parallels there, you know, the extended presence, the blood and treasure spent, the futility of it in the end. And the scenes of those helicopters leaving, taking US helicopters, taking some South Vietnamese to safety, but of course not all. Australia's now in that situation again. Yes, uh, and the situation is one which is logistically much less accommodating than that in Saigon, which was a port basically on the coast so that one could fly people with helicopters out to aircraft carriers. Uh, Afghanistan's a landlocked country, which Mm. makes evacuation uh, a rather more difficult kind of undertaking. It's certainly not adequate to say, as uh, one minister did, that people could make commercial arrangements to leave Afghanistan (laughs) if they're given visas. You sort of wonder what planet people are on when they say (laughs) that kind of thing. Uh, But it also reminds us that when a country has a long-term presence in another country, as Australia has in Afghanistan, one acquires responsibilities, especially if one has repeatedly said that one won't abandon people in the way that Mm. uh, they'd experienced in the past. Uh, The consequence is that people put their lives or their well-being at risk on the strength of such promises and commitments. Uh, And if one then leaves people high and dry, one shouldn't be surprised if it's hard to find cooperative locals in other theatres of operations where a company like Australia might be involved. Yeah, this is the point Neil James has made. uh, Absolutely true. Uh, Why would one go out on a limb to help uh, a Western country during an intervention if at a certain point they're going to wash their hands of you and, Mm. and cut and run? Uh, And there is a reputational dimension here, uh, which, of course, has been fundamentally undermined by the US agreement with the Taliban. Could I just say a little bit about that? Because it's really quite remarkable agreement, the 29th February 2020 agreement, probably the oddest agreement diplomatically since the Munich Agreement of 1938. In the sense that, firstly, the Afghan government was not a party to the agreement, But the United States promised that 5,000 Taliban prisoners held by the Afghan government, up to 5,000 combatant political prisoners, would be released. Mm. And it's very strange when one Mm. party can make a commitment to a terrorist group that its prisoners held by a third party are going to be released. Including one former soldier who murdered three Australians. That's right. Uh, It's also the case that the US a negotiator who signed the agreement, Dr. Halazad, who was not an elected official at all, made a commitment in that agreement that the forces of allies would be withdrawn as well. Now, I've seen no evidence that the Australian government had in advance delegated to Dr. Halazad the right to make such a commitment to the Taliban, but it didn't stop him from doing so, Mm. which again raises real questions about what it means to be an ally of the United States. 
mm. far beyond just the Afghan theatre of operations. You know, we're not the ADF ends up being treated as if it were the Alabama National Guard, <laughs> uh, and that's a rather alarming prospect. Mm. Uh, I would have thought. The agreement was then technically defective because after initially saying nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, which is a defensible diplomatic formula, the Americans shifted to a position of first having their own agreement with the Taliban, only then with intra-Afghan negotiations to follow. But in their first agreement, they gave the Taliban everything they really wanted, mm. place at the table with the Americans, 5,000 prisoners released and a firm timetable for withdrawal of all forces from Afghanistan. So, of course, the Taliban showed, have showed no interest in serious mm. negotiations since then. And what we have actually is a shadow of a peace process. And it was there a major, no meaningful peace process in Afghanistan. Correct. And it was a major win for them, Karen, wasn't it, just having being at the negotiating table? Because for so long, it was just thought absolutely uh, unconscionable to be talking to these people. And Bill makes a very good point, and this goes to the heart of this whole thing, and particularly looking ahead as well as looking back. If you look at, if you look back for a second, talking about Vietnam, that was departure in defeat. And this is not departure in victory, is it? Mm. It's no. departure in the absence mm. of victory. And in that circumstance, you do not have leverage in negotiations like this. You you don't call the shots. And the, the problem one of the problems going to Virginia's point is what gets traded away? What are the priorities when the United States is doing this negotiating effectively on its own? What what are we trading away? What are we prepared to compromise on? What, what priorities are they setting? And I think we should be concerned that a number of things we, should, we shouldn't be trading away will be in the course of getting out smoothly and, and then there'll be a whole lot of post-fact justification. Yeah. And looking ahead, when I wrote a piece in the Saturday paper about the Afghanistan situation of local staff and also the unhappiness of the United States about the closing of the embassy, I spoke to a number of people, including Senator Jim Molan, who um, served as a general for Australia, particularly in Iraq, but also oversaw the evacuation out of East Timor. And I spoke to the former Chief of Army, uh, General Peter Lay, and they were talking about the concerns about uh, about looking ahead, about what we um, what we take from this. Uh, exercise, um, what, what conditions we set, uh, and, and how we need to make sure that we're not, that we're learning the lessons yeah. of this. And also that we get, when we go into future conflicts, we need to go in with, with the intention of winning. We need to set a strategy that can win. We need to resource a conflict so we can win. Because when we lose, as we have in so many conflicts in the past 40 years, Jim Mullen makes the point, then we don't get to set the conditions. And that this goes and to the whole. And we don't get the moral authority that comes with having correct and this well. loops back to the whole point about how we went in what what strategizing was done mm. the failure to read history books about Afghanistan mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. and generations of failure mm. in not not just with the Russians mm. but but going way mm. back of success in that country and we never we, we, we the allied forces didn't absorb that didn't went in very fast movable strategy and have come out of that without victory and now we we trade away the rights of women mm. we, we trade away any moral ground on on you know the the individual who murdered those three Australians I mentioned and what else do we trade away well and that other one one of the other one that's on top of that of course is the interpreters which is a um, an open question at the moment we know there do, do you know roughly how many interpreters there are so or, or, or fixes and interpreters yeah, it's and, not just interpreters it's the local staff at the embassy yeah. as well there are interpreters Interpreters who worked for foreign affairs as well as for defence, yeah. uh, locally engaged staff, security guards, yeah. those kinds of people. Lots of people who've done different things. Yeah. 
uh, ex-ADF personnel who are advocating particularly for the interpreters say that in that domain there's about a 1,000 people, so that includes several hundred interpreters or former interpreters and their families, but then there are others who've worked in Kabul for the security guards and the like that I just mentioned. So we're talking sort of upwards of a 1,000. The British government has got an office set up in Kabul to assist their former staff or or locally engaged staff. They estimate they're dealing with about 3,000. The United States is dealing with about 18,000. Both of those countries are making specific arrangements to help those people, active arrangements, and to get them out of the country. Like evacuation flights? Well, I don't know about evacuation flights, but certainly the President of the United States, Joe Biden, said recently that they will be doing more to actively get those 18,000 out ahead of the withdrawal, which is set to be finished by September 11 of this year, the 20th anniversary of those attacks. Our government has a visa process that's been in place since 2013. It's very slow. It's very cumbersome. Being run by the same people who run the vaccine program. (laughs) Some people um, have been brought to Australia under that program. Uh, Other people uh, have uh, have just had their visa applications sitting there churning through the works. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to one guy in Afghanistan who's been approved but now has to get the final paperwork, medicals and the like, no embassy to do that has to send it overseas, is worried that he's not going to be able to get there, and then how does he get here? So, you know, it's it's not a perfect process. It's a passive process. It's a passive. It is, to be fair, quite a complicated process. I I don't know that um, it's sort of well understood how deep the the research needs to be into people who are making these applications for protection because there will be some people who have perhaps worked for both sides at some point during the conflict. And um, the ex-service and serving personnel who've worked with these people want to advocate for them, want to assist with that information and were, and they tell me, some of them, they were actively told they should not do that going back to the period of our beginning of our drawdown in 2013 around that period. Right. So they, they are concerned that, that these assessments, which are very complicated, made more complicated by the absence of an embassy in Kabul, are compromised and are not based on accurate information and and are all downside and no upside. There is a there is a security question though, isn't there, Bill? Um, about I mean, if someone because some of these people's uh, period of uh, assistance of uh, Australian forces or the Australian Embassy or whatever might have been relatively short. It might have been some years ago. They may have been off the radar That's since. True. We you know no country is going to be importing you know hundreds of people who some of whom they don't know the the the, the political history and allegiances of? Well, some years ago, I wrote a paper uh, about the Electronic Travel Authority, which Australia had in place at that time, and made the point that it was easier, uh, harder for foreign cheese and salami to get into Australia than foreign terrorists, because there's a whole stack of countries where if one hasn't come to the attention of security authorities and one has the right passport, one can simply waltz into Australia. Mm. Uh, So I think one can get uh, overly concerned about these kinds of matters. Uh, if people have worked really for any length of time with the, the Australians, there'll be Australians who know them pretty well. And in critical positions, they wouldn't have been employed in the first place without a very careful look being taken at them. What, what in a sense worries me even more about this situation is the me- mental health implications for Australians who've worked closely with Afghans who see those mm. people being abandoned mm. because uh, really they see them as mates. 
Uh, and uh, for people who might already have a sense of futility arising from the uh, collapse in Uruz gone and the circumstances which accompany the Western withdrawal, the worst possible addition to that problem will be a sense that the people who work closely for them and sometimes put their lives on the line for them have been abandoned to their fate. And if one really wanted to look at something that could grossly aggravate somebody's pre-existing mental health problems and traumas, then that would be exactly the kind of thing that could come into play there. These bonds are very close and it's very the point close. is made frequently lately that Mark Donaldson, who won the VC, the first of the recent VC winners, won it for saving the life of his interpreter. That mm. th- Those bonds are, are super close and, and there is harm done, I think, to Australian soldiers and ex-service personnel by the sense that they can't help these people now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that must be an extraordinary wrench, really, to yeah. think that you've actually relied on someone, perhaps mm-hmm. for your life at certain points, and then you can't actually look that person in the eye and tell them that it meant something that you're mm-hmm. going to protect them in return. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, when we started off talking about how the the minister herself was quite emotional when, recently when speaking about Afghanistan. It's understandable. It is a very emotional uh, situation for everyone, anyone who's been there and anyone who has any connection to Afghanistan. Um, you know, these are very emotional times. Can I just come back I, I to... I couldn't agree more. I should say that all, all four of us talking here have, have been there in, in capacities as journalists and in your case as an academic. So. Mm. And it, 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 you know, it gets under your skin. And yeah. And, and the just something that Karen raised about what we're prepared to trade off, I think, is really important to return to. Again, the women of Afghanistan, the moral obligation there that the rest of the world, particularly those who had forces in Afghanistan, have towards the women and and girls and children is is incredibly strong, I believe. Especially uh, having made the the case that you outlined at the beginning, that, that was one of the core reasons. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And we need to keep in mind, though, as as Professor Maley has said, I mean the the extraordinary deal done in Doha with the US and the Taliban, which is is. is, is just quite remarkable to see the very the very worst terrorists in the world as they were according to all of us not long ago now parading before the cameras as as respectable mm. um, uh, peace negotiators is quite extraordinary and what the US did there but when we look at the, the role of women what will happen to women when the Taliban resume power as they are and 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 take you know significant control in Afghanistan the question has been asked because women are being kept out of the peace process and the peace negotiations the question or I, I should paraf- I should correct that the women who are involved it is said to be nothing but symbolic and even those themselves who are on the fringes of those negotiations right now are telling me that they feel it's it's nothing but symbolic uh, but, but they're not actually having any instrumental mm. uh, influence but the question is what will happen to women with the Taliban takeover, a resumption of power. The Taliban are now saying, because they've been pushed on this by by media, are saying that women will have the same rights that they and principles that they have had under Islam always. And then it, it, it's sort of an excuse. It's a way of saying, well, nothing will change for them because the rights that they have under Islam will be maintained. But then the rights that women had under Islam as interpreted by the Taliban mm. during their reign were atrocious. Were utterly horrendous. And and, mm. and just we're getting close to time, but just specifically, what about women? Because when we talk about women and children, we, and we think back to that period, and we and 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 we see them as a you know a whole 
you know, hemisphere of the population. But what about specifically women who have been activists, mm. professional women, women who have been outspoken in this period and who have been advocating for other women and advocating for reforms and modernity mm. effectively? I would say that the gutsiest do we owe them the uh, gutsiest women I've ever met are, are Afghan um, peace workers and, and women's activists and women's rights activists. Some of them are just absolutely extraordinary, and it is known right now that there are target lists doing the rounds with women's names on them, yes. and they are serious lists. And they've already the Taliban has already upped the ante on uh, attacking women journalists, uh, certainly attacking women peace activists. There's a female and, television presenter blown up in her car recently. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and they've, they've been a whole um, swathe of them, actually. And and the uh, the women who work in the NGOs, et cetera, and who are running you know educational programs for women, particularly reproductive sexual health programs for women and girls, they know they're on these lists. Yes. You know, and, and, and to suggest that these women will be safe once that the, um, the the withdrawal is complete is just a nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Uh, one of the most dangerous items of rhetoric that has circulated has been the claim that because civil society is vibrant in Afghanistan, this will be a kind of bulwark against the Taliban resuming power. And civil society is extremely vibrant in mm. Afghanistan and it is extremely vulnerable as well. And this particular rhetoric has actually thrust civil society activists into the front line of Taliban attacks. Mm. The sister of a friend of mine, um, she was working for the Human Rights Commission last year, was killed with a magnetic mine attached to the side of her car in Kabul. Uh, and uh, that danger, I think, is one which is haunting the situation in, Af- in Afghanistan right now. And it, it drives home the point that there are quite a lot of people who are intensely vulnerable, even though they've not been directly com- connected to foreign embassies that yeah. might have them on a list of people to be protected. Exactly. I think, frankly, we need to have a wider view of who is in need of protection than just people who've worked mm. at embassies and interpreters or locally employed staff. There are graduates of the Australian National University who are prominent exactly. in Afghanistan yes. now who will be vulnerable by virtue of that if the Taliban come back. Uh, and there are groups like the ethnic Hazaras, for example, who are mm. coming under attack all the time in Dashtibachi. It's a terrible irony, isn't it, that Mm. the list of risks that we can plainly see now would have been sufficient in 2001 to justify the invasion. I mean, they Mm. are consistent with the kinds of uh, reasons we went, the Western forces went into Afghanistan in the first place. And yet we're now, uh, it seems, prepared to accept them as legitimate risks upon which we can abandon that country. Mm. The irony of all this is that the bulk of the foreign forces were withdrawn from Afghanistan by the end of 2014. What's been left has been a residual force providing air power and intelligence capabilities for the Afghan National Security Force, and it's that which the Taliban want to see eliminated so that they can push to take over the whole country. It's not as if Afghanistan is occupied by foreign forces or has been for the last five years. That's substantially a myth. And in fact, the commitment that remained in place from 2014 onwards was a low-cost commitment as far as the United States was concerned. And effectively, the agreement in, in Doha was not to cut the costs enormously of international involvement in Afghanistan, but to allow President Trump to go into the election 
uh, in uh, November 2020 saying that he had put an end to an endless war. Mm. Mm. But it actually raises the question of what victory means in certain circumstances because holding the line, stopping a group like the Taliban coming back can in significant respects be a, an achievement. And frankly, if one had... But, it, but isn't it like sweeping leaves on a windy day? I mean... Uh, well, no, I think the better par- comparison is the way in which Britain held on in Europe between the fall of France in June 1940 and the bombing of Pearl Harbour in December 1941. Because if one at any time during that period had said to Winston Churchill, what is your strategy for victory over Nazi Germany? He would not have been able to give a credible response. Except to not not, not give in. Except yeah. not lose. Yeah. Uh, and not losing in certain circumstances can uh, be a significantly better outcome than opting to lose. That was a pretty moral case, though, if you're, if you're Winston Churchill and you're the Prime Minister of a nation that yeah. is under threat of invasion. This is a foreign power being in another country and yeah. and holding the line against a, a, a shifting set of criteria. I mean, in a sense, isn't the but last... But also at much lower cost than the British sure, were sure. incurring by But England. isn't the, the last unambiguous end to a war, like an unambiguous victory, wasn't that Kuwait? I mean, you know, that which is not a civil war. It's a case of, no. uh, of, of, of an invasion by Iraq into, into Kuwait. Desert Storm 1, was it called? You know, Desert was, Storm, yes. Yeah, Desert Storm. Um, operation happens. Iraq is rolled back out of Kuwait. Mm. End of story. Now, you know, you, we, we know what happened after that. But. Yeah. Well, it wasn't quite the end of the story because the Bush administration at the time then called on the Marsh Arabs to rise up against Saddam Hussein and left them high and dry when they did. <laughs> exactly. So, but in, in the case of Afghanistan, the only people rolled out are those who rolled in, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that's important to remember, though, and, and this is really relevant in terms of civil society and certainly our women's NGOs, is that some of those Afghans um, did didn't want the what they call the invasion in the first place, and they're very uncomfortable with foreigners being there. And you know, it, it sounds um, very patronising to even you know have a discussion like this about them uh, at a distance from a, you know the comfort and privilege of a Western society such as ours. Uh, so it, it is very very complicated, and even some of the women I speak to now have no intention of leaving and mm. and and wouldn't even accept the offer to go right now even though they know their lives are really seriously in danger you know i think the the difference that we can make from our privileged position here really is by exerting um trying to exert influence and particularly for Australia at you know multilateral uh, um, forums as much as possible about keeping um, keeping women at the forefront of all discussions considerations and insisting that they be part of the negotiate peace negotiations going forward at an equal level and those to, sorts of things and to uphold the values we purport to hold and the moral um, obligations that we also have i think that, Absolutely. that we, we can also do both of those things and uh, it looks on the face of it at the moment like we're not necessarily doing that as well as we could mm. absolutely and it's very disturbing if in fact the uh, logic of closing the embassy is not just about security but is about those things like not having to process those visa applications directly and not having to assist in the um Investigation phase, a further investigation and prosecution phase of those. The, gov- war the government crimes. denies that those are motivating factors, but they may well be consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, look, thank you so much uh, for uh, for being on Virginia Hasegger, William Ailey, and Karen Middleton. It's been terrific having such uh, uh, great experts in this area on democracy sausage. It's a it's a very grim kind of subject in a way because. 
like the war itself, uh, it, the problems roll on and they are, they are many and, and complex. Thank you very much for, for coming on today. Thank Thanks, you, Thank you. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. I look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.